Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Romans 13, 1-7. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for, is, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant, uh, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is, why, uh, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Thanks, Josh. That was good to hear. Hey, guys. Good to see you tonight. I'm Simon Jacko, one of the older candidates here. And it's my privilege tonight to uh, open God's Word uh, as we continue in our series, We Need to Talk. Uh, Last week, we opened our series, uh, We Needed to Talk, about call-out culture or outrage culture, uh, this culture of kind of... Um, I don't know, calling out perceived evil and things like that and kind of smashing people for it. And we uh, hopefully it was helpful to realise we ought not to do that, uh, but to respond with words of grace and kindness as Jesus would. Uh, tonight we need to talk about how to vote. How to vote. Next Saturday, this coming Saturday, if that's how you talk about it, uh, is the federal election, 2019 federal election. Uh, and if you are 18 years or over, you will, you'll be voting, right? Um, I just want an indication, who's voted already? Who's been to a pre-polling station? Yep, so you can just go tonight and uh, go out to dinner early and it doesn't really matter. No. Um, <clears throat> yeah, how to vote. That's what we're thinking about tonight. Um, I, I kind of want to say tonight... Uh, I'm not exactly going to tell you how to vote. Uh, My job as a leader of God's people is to help you to know Jesus better uh, and know how to live for Jesus well in his world, uh, certain of the world to come. And so I'm not going to tell you exactly what boxes to tick on the ballot paper, but I'm hopefully tonight going to help us to live for Jesus, love like Jesus, and vote in that sort of way tonight. So that's what we're going to think about. Uh, as we open God's word tonight. So uh, I need God's help. We need God's help to understand this subject. So would you pray with me as we think about God's word tonight? Let's pray. Uh, Father Paul, your apostle, uh, says, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to mourn with those who mourn. And so, Father, we just take a moment before we come to your word to remember uh, those on this day, this day we celebrate in our world called Mother's Day. Uh, We, Father, want to rejoice with those who rejoice. We want to thank you, Father, for uh, those of us in this room who've had a wonderful experience of motherhood themselves uh, and those of us in the room who've experienced having a wonderful mum. We thank you for the blessing they are to us and the way they have 
helped us to navigate this world, perhaps even those mums who shared the good news with us. Uh, Father, we praise you and rejoice tonight for mums. But Lord, we also mourn with those who mourn. we, We partner with those, we stand alongside those today who find this day incredibly difficult for all kinds of reasons. Father, in particular, for those women who just long to, long for and desire to be mums themselves, who are unable to for various circumstances, and for those tonight who their experience of a mum has been hard, either it's been hard to be a mum or it's been hard to live with their mum. We praise you and thank you, Father, that In Christ, you are all things to us. In him, we find comfort and meaning and identity and security and love. So, Father, we pray for all the women of the world and the women in this room. Father, we praise you and thank you for them. Father, we praise you tonight that we can sit here freely in the safety of this city and country able to hear Jesus, to see Jesus and to love Jesus. And we pray tonight as we come before your word this night, Father, please would you help us by your spirit to to do those things, to see Jesus, to hear Jesus and to love Jesus and to live in this world certain of the next like Jesus for the glory of your name, for the good of our neighbour and for our joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, government, politics, and political leadership, right? All those things have the potential to evoke very strong feelings in us. There's a story about a soldier in Napoleon's army who was badly wounded in battle, and as the doctor operated on him and opened his chest, he apparently said, if you go much further, doctor, you'll come to the emperor. Um, political leadership can cause great devotion, sacrifice, and love. Yet I suspect that the reality of politics for most of us in the room tonight is a little bit more mundane than all of that. Here's a picture up on the screen of Parliament House. It's coming up. There you go. When you see that image, how do you feel? What comes to your mind? Yell it out. I'm keen to hear. What do you feel, see, think when you see that image? Federal Parliament House in Canberra. What do you think? Yell it out. Don't be afraid. We're all friends. Like a spaceship. Like a spaceship, great. Yeah. Anything else? Apathetic. Apathetic. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Bureaucracy. Yeah. Anything else? This side's particularly voting. Anything else? No? Disconnected. Disconnected. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Anything else? Democracy, yeah, nice work, Mark. Last takers, last takers. Get it in there, be famous for five seconds. What's that? Arguments. Arguments, yeah, yeah, nice. I mean, yeah, the sight of Parliament House for me, like, rarely evokes in me feelings of passion and sacrifice and love and duty and glory. Um, Actually, when I think about politics in Australia, it just fills me with intense boredom, actually. That's pretty much... You know, I think, right, saying you're interested in politics in Australia, I reckon you get the response of, like, demoralised silence or, like, oh, like, you know. (laughs) The current federal election, right, campaign that we're in, um, 
I think perhaps exemplifies this idea of, you know, federal politics in Australia is kind of sublime, ridiculous and kind of despairing. I was listening to ABC Radio the other day, World Today, middle of the day, um, and Sarah Dingle made this great comment. She says this, So far, this 2019 federal election campaign has seen a series of unedifying disendorsements, racist comments, sexist posts, homophobic remarks and even a flirtation with an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that the world is run by a society of Jewish shape-shifting lizards. Sublime, ridiculous and kind of despairing, yeah? But despite this, we know that how our society is governed is actually important. And when we look around the world, right, and we see communities where government has gone bad, like the corruption of the government for many years now in Zimbabwe, the powerlessness of the government in the Sudan, the disaster that is Syria, the horrors of dictatorship of North Korea, and of course, do I even need to mention his name? Donald Trump. We're reminded that politics can really, 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 really matter. You know, for all our protestations right, about the boredom and stupidity of politics in Australia, we also, need that we, we also know that we need to take politics seriously one way or another. So how do we do this as Christians? How, do we, how does believing in Jesus affect the way we think about government? Does it affect it at all? You know, whether due to ignorance or conscientious anxiety about you know, the separation of church and state, this topic, right, of Jesus and politics is actually rarely talked about in churches. So tonight I want to look, about the, look at the place of government and the shape of Christian political action. That's what they want to do. It's a, kind of a controversial topic, maybe. It's a big one. So first, I just want to think about what is government. I think it's worth asking a deceptively simple question, right? What is government? You know, some kind of Political authority or government can be observed in pretty much every society throughout human history. It seems, right, it's a fact that living together, right, if there is going to be a whole lot of human beings living in one place at one time, be that in a village or a city or a valley or a, you know, a country, if we're going to be united in some kind of way and get stuff done and be kind of a we and get along with each other, we need to be governed, Someone like a king, right, or a, a number of people like a committee or a party will rule and the rest of us will be subjects. And typically this will mean a number of things, right? Uh, the person or the people will have control over force, uh, commanding the army or the police. They'll also be in charge of the judicial system, right? So judging disputes that arise among the humans that are hanging out together in a particular place. And the people will normally... Support the subjects will normally support the government by paying taxes. And we see this really clearly, right? If you opened up your Bible and read the Old Testament, you'd see this really clearly. Israel, God's original people, sitting under the leadership of the kings. Uh, David, King David, King Solomon, and all their kind of kingly descendants were the figureheads of Israel, the nation, holding her together as a people. They marched at the head of the armies and they were Israel's judges. 2 Samuel 14 says the king is, quote, like the angel of God discerning good and evil. The classic example, right, is the story of King Solomon judging over two women. And Israel responds by obeying the king's command and then supporting them by taxes and then from time to time, you know, fighting for them when they were called upon. 
So this is the basic shape of government, of politics. There's a government which commands and a people who obey. That's the classic shape of government, right? But someone might say, whoa, 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 like Mark. Mark might say, but, but Jacko, we live in a democracy, right? Isn't all this talk about, you know, someone commanding and we all obeying, isn't that a bit sort of, you know, like that belongs back to like Game of Thrones or something like that? I don't know, you know, where there's a king and there's slaves and all that sort of stuff. Of course, right, it's true that the form of government, you know, that the form that a government takes will vary enormously throughout history. You know, today we elect our, or on the 18th of May, we'll elect our Australian government at various levels. And the powers of government in Australia are formally separated. So the Prime Minister cannot also be the High Court judge at the same time. And that's certainly kind of significantly different to like the old-fashioned monarchical kind of system where the king was both kind of ruler and judge and executor and all that sort of stuff. But the question needs to be asked, right? Um, we need to ask whether fundamentally... Um, does this alter, does democracy alter the shape of politics? You know, does democracy mean that it's no longer right to talk about a government and subjects who obey? My belief is, right, that it has not fundamentally changed. Yes, any one of us can run for parliament. I'd love to see, actually, some of us maybe one day rise up and be some kind of political leader. That'd be great. Um, Yes, we can vote out a government if we get sick of them, right? But the, base of, of the basic shape of politics is still that we are governed by a government. There are people in authority over us and we need to obey them. We are aware of this reality all the time. When was the last time you were pulled over and breathalyzed? Anyone want to, was it recently? When was the last time? Anyone recently? I was not so long ago, but I was pulled over. You know that feeling when you're pulled over and there's that intense fear that you feel when they pull you over? Even if you haven't had a beer for like 14 years, <laughs> you just go, oh my gosh, it's the police, they're going to get me, you know? They're going to find out something about my life and it's going to come out in the breathalyzer. I don't know, you know? <laughs> we get that fear. We, they are in charge, we're not, you know? Like... Or, you know, when APEC happens and all the heads of government come to town, there's special laws enacted that mean we can't go very close to that area unless you're from the chaser or something like that. But, <laughs> but democracy is great in lots of ways, right? But it does not change the basic shape of government. They govern us, we're the subjects under their authority. That's the basic shape. That's what is government. But the question needs to be asked, right? What has Jesus done to government, right? The next question to ask is, if that's the basic reality of politics, what difference does the gospel make to it? What has Jesus done to government? The first thing we need to notice is that the gospel is profoundly political. Political in the broad sense, right? So Jesus doesn't come with a particular political agenda that's really narrow. His political agenda is broad and sweeping and kind of changing, but it's profoundly political. Why do I say this? Because when Jesus came, this was his message. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. And when the apostles realised that the kingdom really had come in the person and work of Jesus through his death and resurrection, what do they proclaim? Jesus Christ is Lord and King. The gospel is about God's kingdom, his rule, his government, his agenda. It's a profoundly political message. 
God has made Jesus king and judge, and all people are called to come under his rule. And that has a massive impact on how we think about political leaders. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is king, then Caesar isn't king. The king of any land is not king. The prime minister can't be king. They can no longer expect to be given that first place in our loyalty and allegiance. The place belongs to Jesus and no one else. Jesus said, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Jesus is king. He is the ultimate authority. You know when Pontius Pilate confronts Jesus, Pilate's powerlessness is revealed. Jesus says to him, you only have power because it's been given to you from on high. Because Jesus is now the world's true king, earthly rulers are destined to pass away. The Bible describes our future hope as a city built by God in which people from every nation, Revelation 7, will live under the rule of God alone. As the loud voices from heaven shout in Revelation 11:15, quote, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Christ will be king. And the rulers of the world will cast down their crowns before him, Revelation 4, verse 10. And it's for that reason, right? The Apostle Paul writes to rank-and-file Christians, the Philippians in the first century, and says that our citizenship is where? In heaven. And to a church in Philippi, probably loaded with Roman citizens, this was a reminder, right, that there is a more important reality in their lives now than their country They were citizens of heaven, part of Jesus' family, part of Jesus' nation. In the same way, the Apostle Peter describes us Christians as aliens and exiles, just passing through on our way to the new creation. Christians, you and I cannot be at home in any earthly nation because we belong to the heavenly city, to Jesus' kingdom. And that, of course has a big effect on how we think about nationalism, which I can't talk about tonight at length. Maybe in a 12-part series we can do some other time, but there you go. What has Jesus done to government? Well, what place does government still have under Jesus Christ's lordship? If the destiny, right, of all earthly rulers is to realise that Jesus is Lord and hand their kingdoms over to him, what place is left for government? If the kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus through his death and resurrection, is there any need anymore for the kingdom of Queen Elizabeth? Do you realise we live in the kingdom of Queen Elizabeth? We do. What, What room is there, what place is there for the government of Donald Trump or the potential government of Bill Shorten or ScoMo? The kingdom of God has come, yeah? But it hasn't come yet in fullness. Jesus' reign is not yet obvious. It's not yet fully visible. The time hasn't come yet, as Paul says in Philippians, where every knee will bow before King Jesus. Because of this, the Bible sees there as being a continuing role for earthly governments to play. But this role is kind of limited. It's to maintain order and justice within the society through judgment. Did you get that? The the role of government today is to maintain order and justice within society through judgment. 
And this is the teaching of Paul in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, and the parallel passage by Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 17. Um, the Apostle Paul, right, he writes to the church at Rome, first century, and he says these words. These are the words that um, I had Josh read out, but let's read them again. Paul writes, let everyone, oh, sorry, let me just set the context for this, right? Go back, otherwise people are going to read that and not listen to me. That's no good. No, um, <laughs> Context of Romans, right? Uh, Jesus has died and risen again, ascended to the right hand of God, has poured out his spirit. Um, Paul then uh, dramatically becomes a, a follower of Christ and then he writes a large chunk of the New Testament. Romans is the big letter that he writes. Uh, he writes this letter to Christians in Rome. Um, he's appealing to them to support the mission. He's also kind of sorting out some differences between the Jews and the non-Jews and people who've come to know Jesus. Anyway, Romans 1 through to 11 basically is, is Paul outlining massive, beautiful theology of how through the cross, God's reconciled Jews and Gentiles to each other because neither Jew or Gentile is right before God. It's only through faith in the finished work of Jesus that any of us can be right with him. And so Romans 1 to 11 is really theology, 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 getting us to the point where we go, yep, okay, it's all about Jesus. Only through Jesus can we have peace with God. Only through Jesus is there no longer condemnation for those who were once sinners. Chapter 12 through 16 basically is Paul saying, well, let me tell you what this looks like in the real world. What does it look like for knowing Jesus to kind of, what's the, what does the rubber hitting the road look like? He talks about what it looks like for us to live together as Christians, to do life together, to be forgiving, humble, hospitable. And then he talks about politics. Here we go. This is what he says. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? And do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For the rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. The authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. few things to notice here, right? Follow with me. Four things. Four things. Firstly, governments are given by God. Paul is very clear. There is no authority except that which God has established. Governments are given by God. And whatever the process through which that happens, be it election or monarchical succession or revolution, God is the one who raises up authority. Secondly, government is God's servant for our good. Government is given to us by the living God for our good. Government is God's servant, God's minister or diakonos. Governing authorities are God's Minister for our good. Thirdly, government has a particular job. 
They're to punish wrongdoing and to praise those who do good. The task of of government is to maintain justice by giving judgments. For this purpose, Paul writes, the authority bears the sword. It can enforce its judgments. In this way, political uh, authority defends our good. Therefore, our basic attitude to government should be one of submission rather than resistance. This involves paying taxes, giving what is due. But this submission, right, it's not slavery. We're not slaves to this. It doesn't come from fear of possible punishment. It comes from conscience, the conviction that this is the right thing to do, from a recognition that authority really is given to us by God for our good. And fourthly, right, perhaps the most important thing to note is that the role of government is really limited. It's really limited. Many have argued, many have argued right, against the proposed quietism of these passages, but these passages actually do something radical. They limit the role of government to the practice of judgment. Right? So typically, right, rulers want to do a whole lot more than simply maintain justice in society. Um, you know, so you think about the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor of Paul's day. Um, They want to be seen as the saviours of the world, the solution to all our problems, the the focus of all our hopes, and they can get big ideas, right, about bringing civilization and real life. You know, just think about Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao Zedong. To tell these rulers, right, they've actually just got a little role of giving judgment, it's really powerful. See, Paul's political theory, and it's actually a political theory that's built on the political theory of Jesus, is that, well, there's only one saviour, only one person who can bring real life and real hope. It's Jesus Christ. And so governments in this age have only a really small role left to play, really small role left to play. So government under Christ's lordship, under King Jesus, is kind of pushed back, called to humbly perform the task of judgment until Jesus returns and human society finds its perfection until he comes back. And what's really significant, I reckon, is that the Apostle Paul links this idea of the government kind of just simply limiting its role to actually the church's mission in the world, to our mission as God's people. So Paul says this, I think it's on the screen, 1 Timothy chapter 2. No, it's not. There you go. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness, there you go, and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of of the truth. See, the Apostle Paul, right, he urges prayers to be offered for government so that social order may be maintained, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. But this is not an end in itself, right? The maintaining of order serves a more important purpose, enabling, look at that, people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. See, good government ensures the social space for the church's mission. 
This role of defending the common good by condemning wrong and upholding right, which also serves to spread the gospel, is the idea of secular government. What do you think of when you hear the word secular? What do you think of? I often think that the word secular, when I hear it, means non-religious, you know, like everything but Christian stuff. Never meant to mean that. Secular comes from the Latin word seculum, which, which means age or eon. So secular government means government only in this age. The opposite of secular is not sacred, but the opposite of secular is eternal. Good government recognises that it's secular, that it has a limited role to play in this age only until Jesus returns and the kingdom of God is made visible to all. That's the shape of good government. Now, we know, right? We know what happens uh, sometimes. Governments, well, at least in my experience, right, don't always just want to limit their role to just like doing that role of judgment, right? Um, condemning good and rewarding, uh, condemning bad, sorry, and rewarding the good. Um, Often governments seek to be kind of more than that. And, and sometimes, as we've already seen, they kind of want to be like, I don't know, like saviours, the hope of all our dreams, the, the, the end of all our dreams, the, the hope for all of our desires. You know, and instead of governments recognising that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord, they actually kind of want to fight back against the lordship of Jesus. And we haven't really got time to go into it tonight, but there are moments in the New Testament that sort of speak of how bad governments can go. Particularly the book of Revelation, right, talks about how governments can go really pear-shaped and actually kind of pictures this, you know, beast that emerges and this beast then kind of, you know, this government that is pictured as a government that's gone horribly wrong, become deeply evil. And I think there's probably all kinds of evidence of, of the warnings of John in the book of Revelation throughout the 20th century, and maybe even into ours, where we probably could have taken note of that. John warns about the dangers of governments that demand our full loyalty and our allegiance. Governments can go horribly bad, and, and the Bible actually has ways of interpreting that theologically as an expression of satanic opposition to Christ's triumph. But let's return to a positive possibility. What's the, what's the, what might good government look like? I mean, what I'm hoping to do tonight is just not help you kind of tick the right box come Saturday, but set us up to think really theologically and well about what good government looks like going ahead into the future. What could good government look like? What would it look like for government? What would it look like for ScoMo's government? What it look like for Bill Shorten's government to, to govern well in this age? I mean, books have been written about what good government looks like. Um, some of them are great books, some of them are not so good, and some of them are rubbish. But just four things. This is what good government would look like. The first one is this. Jump ahead of it. There we go. Good government. I think I've got four things. Are they there? There we go. Four things. Good government will make true judgments. Uh, good government will make true judgment. That is, laws and actions that will align with what God says is right and wrong. 
God's law, the divine law, will correspond with like what the government kind of wants to do. Now, this introduces, right, the problematic idea of the separation of church and state. Now, can I say, those who came up with the idea of separating church and state didn't come up with the idea that, you know, the government um, and church should be entirely separate and have nothing to do with each other. It was actually originally a way of defending the freedom of the church. It was never meant to mean the separation of Christianity from the political realm. So that decisions about politics and policy and legislation, you know, could never be influenced by Christians or religious faith and values. We as Christians can't embrace that approach because there is real right and wrong and we know them from God. Good government will be government that judges in accordance with the truth of God revealed in his word. Uh, Secondly, good government will see that it has limited authority. There are just simply some things beyond the government that, that are beyond the government to judge. You know, how a man or woman stands before God, their maker, their creator, is beyond a government to determine. So a government will maintain freedom of religious belief, understanding that there is a higher authority that will determine people standing before God. So as Christians, we should fight hard for religious freedom. And that's an issue, I think, that's circling around this current federal election. We should be people that stand for religious freedom and fight hard to maintain it. Thirdly, good governments will be modest about their capacities. Um, they can't judge everything. They can't determine you know, every single thing that goes on. Good government will be modest about its abilities. And fourthly and finally... Good government will defend the poor and the vulnerable in society. Um, The Bible gives us reasons to emphasise this all the way through, from the Old Testament, through the Gospel and into the New Testament. Good government will defend the poor and the vulnerable in society. We see this especially through the Old Testament, um, which teaches about what good kingship, good leadership looks like. So uh, Proverbs 28, verse 3. A ruler who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. Uh, Secondly, if a king judges the poor with equity, his throne will be established forever. Uh, Speak out for those who cannot speak for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And then beautifully, Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. All the way through the scriptures, right, there is this kind of word from God through the prophets uh, to say that Israel, God's people, you're not defending the rights of the vulnerable, the poor, the alien, the weak, the small. You know, and then you you flip open into the the New Testament and you find Jesus, right? He comes. In chapter 3, he goes into the temple. He unrolls a scroll. He's called to read the scroll of Isaiah. And the scroll says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. 
to proclaim freedom to the captives, sight to the blind, the year of the Lord's favour. There's just things there that, that shape this kingdom. You know, and then you go into the Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom that Christ brings ultimately through his death and resurrection is a kingdom that says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the powerless, blessed are those who, who don't have success in this world, blessed are those who are just on the heap. And it's those features of the kingdom. You know, it's in this world, right, you and I, we gravitate to power. We love power. We love success. We love comfort. We love recognition. And yet the kingdom that Christ brings in, that brings about real change, is a kingdom that's not marked by power and success and recognition and of comfort. It's pretty much all the opposite things. You know, and, that's, and that, the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom that really does confront hunger and overturn it, really does bring hope to the poor, really does overcome injustice. And they're the things that, if we're part of that kingdom, we ought to be characterised by as well. Not a hungering for power, a hungering for comfort, a hungering for success or recognition, but a desire to be more like Jesus. So good government will judge truthfully. It will recognise its really limited authority. It will be modest about its capacities and it will defend the rights of those who are in need, the vulnerable. So who are you going to vote for? Is that why you came to church tonight? Like to find out which box on the ballot paper to tick? I don't know. Who are you going to vote for? Um... Let me just share briefly, an article that I found really helpful was an article that John Dixon posted up just really recently on sort of how to vote. I'll put it up on Slack, you can read it there. But he's made a few really good comments in that paper, but he also made just a couple of really good things about how to vote at the end. So I just want to share those and just briefly expand on those as we close tonight. Um, here we are, they're coming up. Um, one, vote for others, not yourself. Vote for others on Saturday, or if you've already voted and you haven't voted for others, it's okay, Jesus forgives you, it's all right. Um, vote for others, not yourself. Because as Christians, right, we are not just concerned about me. We're, we're concerned about the wider public good. So vote for others, not yourself. You know, I think um, John Dixon in this paper kind of talks about, you know, if you're a small business owner, you know, there's a tendency, right, a desire to go, well, I'm a small business owner, I'm going to look for the person who's going to kind of put policies in place that are going to work really well for me. And if you're a Christian small business owner, that's, that's okay, right? I'm not saying you can't desire to want to grow and have a more profitable business, but it's not just about you. As Christians, we're called to be concerned for the wider public. So vote for others, not for yourself. Secondly, vote for the moral health of the community, right? So as Christians, I want to be very careful to say, you know, Christians, we are not just the people who proclaim morals, morals, morals. You know, as long as you think well, do the right thing, you'll be okay at the end of the day. We want to be people who say, you know, you're only, you only have power to do the right thing if you have the power of the Holy Spirit as saved by the blood of Jesus, but there are some things that are really good for our society and things that are not good for our society. And we, 
We feel them, we know them, and we learn them from Scripture. Let's vote for the moral health of our community, not just economic prosperity. I find that tendency really strong in me. My family background is always about, well, you know, as long as the economy is doing really well, everyone's going to be fine, right? And there's a sense in which that's, that's, not, that's not too far from the truth. That if we have a strong economy, then it's likely, in a, in a strong sort of middle Australia, whatever that means, but, you know, middle Australia, it's likely then that the disadvantaged, the vulnerable, are actually going to do better, Right? There'll be less kind of disparity between the top and the lower areas. But as God's people, we want to be concerned about the things that God, our creator, would applaud. Justice, family, honesty, mercy. Right? So vote for the moral health of our community. Thirdly, vote for the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable. As Christians, we will vote for those who need our vote more than we need our vote. And this mandate is what we see all the way through Scripture. We've explored this. As God's people, we are to be marked by a love for, a care for the vulnerable. And by that, I'm talking about babies. I'm talking about people who are, who are desperately unwell, the aged, the dying. We want, to be con- we want to be concerned for those two things. Vote, vote for the poor, the weak, the vulnerable. Now, one of the things that I'm really passionate about as well is foreign aid. Um, you know, over the past 10 or so years, our contribution we give to countries around the world and supporting their social infrastructure and health and things like that is kind of on the slide. Um, we want to be concerned for the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, not just in our own country, but around the world as well. And so we want to be concerned about that. Um, fourthly, vote for the gospel. Vote for the gospel. We want to be people who have a concern for the advancement of the gospel. That's got to be a central concern for us as Christians, the spread of the kingdom of Christ. With all those values you'll come across in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout Scripture, You know, again, our society is all about gaining power, comfort, success, and recognition. And yet, because Christians, we are freed from power and the hunger for recognition and the desire for success and the the desires and pleasures of this world, we are free to love our neighbor like Jesus has loved us. We want to vote for the gospel, freedom of religious expression, freedom for that. And finally, Called in that paper to vote prayerfully. Let's pray for our leaders. Scripture urges us to pray for our leaders, those we love, those we don't love, and those that are sort of in between. We're to pray for our leaders in government. And ultimately, we pray for our government. We pray for stable government, good government, so that it allows us to share the good news that people might be saved. And so again, Paul says this. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. Pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth.
How are you going to vote? I'm not going to tell you how to vote. But I want to ask you to pray hard about it. Uh, not just kind of go, whatever. Um, not start a revolution around the democracy sausage barbecue, you know, agitating for stuff. But engage helpfully. But I think we should pray. Let's pray. Ask God to help us. Almighty God, uh, ruler of the nations of the earth, we pray tonight that you'd give wisdom to Elizabeth, our Queen, our Father, and to all members of our federal parliament and senate. So we pray also for the Premier of our state, South Australia tonight, Stephen Marshall. We pray for all the state members and more broadly, our Father, all who hold office in this country. We pray, Father, that you'd grant that their decisions may be based on wise counsel so that peace and welfare, truth and justice may prevail among us. And Father, I ask that you'd make us a blessing to other nations. And Father, we thank you for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of Jesus, the Son you love. Father, it's in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins and real hope, hope that won't disappoint. Lord, help us by your spirit to be good citizens, submitting to authority. Father, knowing when to speak up, knowing when to speak out. Help us by your spirit to be people who are known for caring for the poor, the weak, the disadvantaged. But above all, make us people known above all for our allegiance, not to this nation, not to a political party, but allegiance to our King Jesus. And so, Father, tonight, hear our prayer for all those who are far away from you. Father, may they come to believe the hope that you hold out in the gospel. Do open doors, Father, for the gospel in every land. Enable the messengers of your truth to proclaim it clearly as they should. Lord, help us to be wise in the way we act towards outsiders and make, every, make the most of every opportunity given to us. And Lord, we commit this upcoming federal election to you. We thank you that you are the giver of government. Father, we pray, Father, ahead of this election that you would indeed give us a good government. Father, a government that is shaped by you and your law. Father, a government that recognises its limited authority. Father, a government that values the things of this world that many of us don't value. Father, yeah, care for the poor and the disadvantaged, we pray. So, Father, help us to actively engage wisely in this election coming up. For your glory, the good of our neighbour, and, yeah, our good as well. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.